Welcome to the Love on the Go podcast, brought to you by Carolina's Matchmaker. I'm Laurie Burzak, and for over 17 years, I've been helping singles find the relationship of their dreams all over the Carolinas. Along the journey, I've met so many amazing professionals and experts from various fields, and I'm excited to introduce them to you. What's my goal? I want to help you look at love and relationships in a new way and to grow in your understanding of how love works. Let's learn together how people have overcome personal obstacles and have found love, first and foremost, with themselves. The ultimate goal is realizing that you are worthy and deserving of love. Let's get started. All right, we've got Sandra Weber with us today, who is a mind and body mentor who empowers her clients to rebuild a mind and body connection through massage and body work. And she, what I'm, I'm intrigued to talk to you about today, Sandra, is the idea of reducing or preventing chronic pain through mind-body awareness. So Sandra grew up in a hyper-fundamental religious church, and she's going to talk about how that affects healthy relationships and the purity culture movement and lots of other things. So get ready for a ride. Welcome to Love on the Go. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk to you. Yeah, for sure. So Sandra, you own and operate Integrative Body Work in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So for people that are living outside of Charlotte, you can come here for something special. (laughs) Absolutely. You're also doing trainings for corporate and private events, um, providing actionable steps to rebuild the mind-body connection. Absolutely. It's like we've all heard these words before, and sometimes they just kind of go over your head. Like what, tell us exactly what you offer to your clients. What do you offer in your practice? So the the easiest way to to describe it right off the bat is traditional massage with really heavy bent towards anatomy. So really learning how the body works and you go in for a massage and people can get a massage in many places and it's great. Um, But I have a lot of certifications and advanced training in how functional anatomy works So that when you have issues like sciatica, like chronic neck pain, like headaches, um, a lot of my clients have a lot of autoimmune issues. They have fibromyalgia, they have lymphatic issues. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot more in my sessions than the traditional typical massage. I do craniosacral therapy. So craniosacral therapy is another. I've done that. Yep. So it's another hands-on modality. A lot of people confuse it with Reiki, which it's not that that's two separate things, Mm-mm. but um, it's hands-on work in the clinic, in the practice that I do. So hands-on anatomically focused massage and body work. And then because of my long career in the field and years and years of study, because I learned very quickly that people would come to me physically hurting but there is a mental, emotional, spiritual trauma, family connection to it. So mm-hmm. I had to start learning what that connection was to be able right. to help people understand we can work the body backwards a little bit to help with those things. And I'm a big referral. I refer my clients out all the time. As soon as I start hearing some buzzwords, or as soon as I feel and see different things in their body, and they say a couple of things about their past. I know it's there's a connection there. And if they're willing to be referred somewhere that works well with what they're talking about, mm-hmm. I immediately get another professional on board because yeah. everything is connected and mental, emotional, those things play out physically every time. You, it, they right. can't be, there's no, there's no disconnect there. Exactly. I think that what some people 
don't always connect is that whatever is going on in our mind is going to be impacting our body. 100%. So for me personally, I have rheumatoid arthritis. I went and had, and I know that it was activated when there was a death in our family that was tragic for me to watch somebody die. It was horrible. And my RA flared. It was just terrible. And I could not even get a massage. My body was in so much pain. So I went in for this sacral, the cranial Cranious. sacral. Cranial sacral, yes. Yeah. And she just worked on my head mm-hmm. and it helped my entire body. So there's so much to be said for this body of work that Sandra is doing. Yes. And if you're listening from another part of the country, there are practitioners everywhere. Everywhere They're all trained under like a certain brand is my my right. Isn't that ex- there's big- several different, different. Um, okay. certification boards yeah. and things, but yes, there's yeah. certification, a great deep training that people get for this. And it's, it's, uh, it's very elevated in term and it's, and it's very relaxing. So it can be just as relaxing as somebody massaging your entire body. So I just want to kind of say that, um, what are you learning when you're on that on that table with people, I bet you you're hearing some stories. I always, this is a horrible joke, but this is a joke that I always say is that body workers are like bartenders without the alcohol (laughs) because the power of touch is just that it is very powerful. Mm -hmm. And when you start to help someone unravel their physical pain, it just starts coming out. Yeah. And sometimes they can't even help it that, you know, we are, we are trained to not evoke information from our clients. That's not our job. We're not therapists and we're not supposed to, you know, talk back or give advice. So we are really a sounding board. People talk and we just agree. And that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm documenting it. So I know how to best help them. Yes. But one of the big ways that this happens is for example, just going to trauma that someone may have experienced in their past. Yes. When I go to work on their legs and I'm trying to do like, if I'm trying to rotate their leg in and out and it's, it's just locked locked in place. And it's not because their femur head can't move in the joint. It's Mm. because their pelvic floor muscles are so tense. It Mm. won't allow mobility of the joint. So then, and I, and I know as a body worker in palpation, what someone that has femoral acetabular impingement, impingement syndrome feels like, which is where the femur head is locked up in the joint yeah. versus what it feels like when someone's clenching, mm-hmm. I can feel that right away. So mm-hmm. when I, and they don't, sometimes I'll go through sessions and people will say nothing the first couple of times, but yeah. I try to do range of motion. It's not happening. I don't force it. A couple of times, a couple of sessions in when they start to trust me more, have more rapport, feel more comfortable and safe in my room. When mm-hmm. I try to do those techniques, sometimes they just start saying, or they'll just write out share, you know, I had sexual trauma as a child, or they'll okay. say something like that. So the mm-hmm. body, the body does tell a story. It mm-hmm. comes out in many different ways. And I, you know, our job as body workers and practitioners is to allow the client to tell the story that they want to tell yeah. and then listen to the body as it speaks, because it does. So interesting. Does the massage that you've done, has it ever triggered a memory? All the time, (laughs) especially, um, you know, a a lot of it goes back to childhood. A lot of it will, you know, people will just say, I don't know. I just had this thought of nowhere about my dad walking me through a field when I was younger Mm. and we weren't even talking. So that can happen. Um, 
I, I was working on a lady one time I was working on her forearm and, you know, I, my treatment room and the way things flow is just like a traditional massage, but I just saw her, I just saw tears start trickling down her face. Yeah. Again, we we're trying how to handle this emotional releases are perfectly normal and acceptable and welcome. And I just, you know, I asked her, are you comfortable to continue? Do you need to take a break? Do you need to sip the water? She's like, no, 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 I'm fine. My mom died last year. And I just, you know, just started thinking of her while you're doing the work. So yeah all the time, almost every day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I know for some, you know, some folks that are single and, you know, they just haven't been touched in a long time. Um, yep. That must be, I think it's, it's important to be touched. So massage is a really wonderful way to enter that space in a safe way, um, in a healthy way where you you're not locked into a relationship or trying to form a relationship or trying to, you know, be something you're not, whatever it is. Um, it's a brilliant way to connect to your body. Um, non, non-sexual caring touch yeah. is so healing. Mm-hmm. I tell people, you know, some people say, well, massage doesn't do a lot. A massage does so much. I can give you a list biologically what it does, but cognitively, if someone has had trauma in their past or, and you you know, trauma has many different levels and rankings, but for them to be able to want to receive and not have the opportunity or have a barrier with their partner or anything like that, having trouble in any capacity, if they're coming to me, they know that that's none of that's on the table. Mm -hmm. I've had clients come to me and say, I don't want any work below my waist. Cool. We're going to do back, shoulders, arms. I can spend an hour on someone's head, face, and neck. But start, what, what I say is you're practicing receiving mm. get body work. And that's very hard for some people. But what I see happen every time is a couple sessions in. Again, I gain their trust. They feel comfortable in the room. This is why I do a free 15-minute consultation. People can come in my office. They meet me. They see the room. They smell the smells. They hear the noises. Their body becomes adapted to where they, they were going to be. And then as we start to have that experience of care and receiving, they're like, um, next time you can do my feet. So mm-hmm. I do the upper body and the feet. Mm-hmm. And then the time after that, like, I guess you can go ahead and do my legs. Mm-hmm. So they're learning to receive caring touch. So yes, it is absolutely healing. And more couples should work on each other. I teach my couples, um, especially Valentine's Day is coming up. Buy a massage gun. It does not have to be the expensive one. Get the $35 one off Amazon and and use your massage gun on each other. Because even couples doing that for each other, there's so much healing there. Being willing to give non-sexual healing touch and being able to receive that caring touch or a massage gun or anything like that. It's so good for the body of the receiver, the mind of the receiver and the mind and the body of the giver. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's good for both. I know that you had some trauma yourself growing up, um, being involved with this hyper fundamental religious church system. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about that? So, you know, I grew up in the Bible belt. My husband didn't grow up in the Bible belt, but he grew up also in a church and a Christian college of the same tilt. So if you can imagine, um, girls, women were not allowed to wear pants because it's, um, not modest. Right. It was the typical, you know, women's bodies cause men to sin. So there's a lot of emphasis on morality and 
being appropriate with your dress, which neither of those things are bad. <laughs> it's right. when, you, when you put them on the scale and slide it towards the red side too far, you know, and right. you become hyper-focused on these things. Um, so basically, you know, taking a religious dogma to the point of having preferences, which is what people coming on the other side of these things understand a lot of the rules that we were forced to obey were preferences people set in place. Mm. So coming through that and then seeing, yeah, I don't think this is how it's supposed to work. And then relationships, the women, uh, as in a lot of religions, not just Christianity, mm. women were basically created to serve a man. Yeah. To be there, you know, everything they say goes, you submit, you stay. Um, you're basically a yes woman <laughs> to everything they want. And that was kind of the culture that was created in those type of situations. How did you come to realize this, that this didn't really sink in with you? Did you have like a uh, light bulb moment? I didn't have a light bulb moment. I just started looking around. Well, so for, for me specifically, and so a little bit more about my background of why I kind of saw these things. My family came from the Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, tri-state area. They were coal miners. So okay. that plays into their personality as well and their education and how they, their worldview. And a lot of the, you know, coal mining is hard. Coal mining families, they, they worked to survive. They were yeah. survival people. That's what they did. So yeah. I understand more about their personality types now being older. I didn't as a child, but, yeah. you know, if you think of a stereotypical, hard, mean, short tempered, keep the kids quiet. Don't bother their dad. That was my upbringing. So being that I was a scared, timid child, people that meet me now are like, we don't know who you are because who you were as a kid was not this. <laughs> By the way, for those of you that aren't on YouTube watching, Sandra has like shaved head on the side, <laughs> really cool, like blonde bob on the other side, like kind of edgy. The pixie cut. Um, well, that's an example. Like when I cut my hair, yeah. I had family members well, I, I had, I had hair down to my elbows until I was a freshman in college because mm -hmm. a woman's hair is her beauty. Oh boy. And I yeah. had family members contact me and say, you know, you just cut off your most beautiful feature and <laughs> you know, men, men, men are not attracted to short hair. Okay. I mean, those kinds of standards are what I'm talking about, but going back to the way I was raised, having the, the men in my life and both my mom and dad had seven or eight kids in each family. So lots of uncles, they're all hard and mean. And when I, I looking just as a child, I remember at around 12 or 13, I started looking around and we moved a couple of different places at this point. So I got to see some examples in different churches and I'm like, what I experienced in my home, because we were afraid, you know, because it was, it was mean. It was always kind of yelling. It was demanding you obey or else. Mm -hmm. um, and I would look around at other families and I would see dads not act that way. And I would be at sleepovers and their dads were really kind and nice. And, mm -hmm. and I have a great relationship with my dad now. Like I said, things change over time, but mm -hmm. growing up and that aha moment kind of was a slow learn. Mm -hmm. And I started reading the Bible myself, which is what a lot of people in religious cultures should do is read your own scriptures. A lot of times mm -hmm. it's in black and white people twist and turn things, of course, but I started to understand, I don't think this is how God wants a family structure to look like. I don't think if he wants you to commit to someone for the rest of your life, that it should be 
you should want to come home every day. You should want to be with your partner. It should be amazing. If I'm going to commit myself to this one person, it should mm. be awesome. So mm. I started having that thought process as a teenager. And I just made a decision when I get out on my own, I'm not going to marry someone that believes these things. I'm going to make my own decision and I'm going to have an awesome family and I'm going to have an awesome marriage and a fun marriage. So I started having those thoughts and, and prayers and intentions as a teenager. Okay. Then you did continue on to a religious college. I did. One of the things I like to tell people that come through this situation is you don't have to not love God anymore and you can still go to church. <laughs> and have different beliefs and preferences, like I said earlier. So yes, my husband and I actually met in a Bible college is what they're called seminary for those who don't know what those lingo means. Um, But yes, we met in a Christian college. I went for secondary education. Okay. I have um, my actual degrees in secondary education. I learned really quick that I don't like other people's kids. (laughs) I do do like teaching though. So I'm always teaching. I was a volleyball coach for a while. So it still did serve me well. And I met my husband and many, many good friends that I still have to this day. Um, But yes, we met in college and people, because I've been married 25 years and people always ask how in the world that worked. I never thought I would get married at 21. Never. Okay. The way I thought it would probably work for me because I had a very clear understanding of what I was looking for in a partner. And the first thing that I was looking out for was a temper. And if I saw someone have a temper with a waitress or with authority in any way, or it was just rude to people, I didn't care what you brought to the table. I was immediately out. Mm -hmm. So I was watching for those red flags to not, I learned from my situation I was in my surroundings to not repeat that in my own relationship. So, you know, things happened, friend groups were there and I met my husband, um, and, you know, it was like the perfect storm because again, I was looking for the the temper, the attitude, those things not there with my husband at all, which is one of the reasons I married him. Yeah. We were both athletes. I always try to get people with my, I have two 20 year old kids. One's 23, one's 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always teaching them, you know, to what to look for, what to look out for and partners and compatibility things that you like him to like everything together. But we were both athletes. And I remember there was a couple we were in the gym one night. My husband played basketball. I played volleyball and he came over and he was like, dude, his girlfriend's mad at him for playing ball. Hmm. And she's mad that he's not like staying with me, you know, talking to her all night. And I'm like, well, you don't have to worry about that because I'm going to be playing volleyball all night and you can play basketball as long as you want. So hmm. those common things started to happen. I met his family. Hmm. I saw how his father treated his mother. Hmm. I knew I was safe there. And, and watching him, you know, even in the school we were in, there was a big, like, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the women. There's a lot of pressure on the men to become pastors. Like Mm. that was God's ultimate calling. You know, you were the, you were chosen of God to be a pastor. And I knew all these yahoos I was going to college with. I'm like, you are not called of God to be a pastor. I can tell you that right now, but they would still raise their hand during a sermon because they were so pressured to do it and pressured to commit and pressure right. to show what kind of servant you are. Yeah. My husband never did that. He was like, I am not called to be a pastor. I'm not standing up mm-hmm. and saying, I'm going to do something I'm not going to do. Mm-hmm. But those little things I started seeing, okay, he, he loves God. Like I do. He wants to be involved in church. Like I do, but he's not buying into all of this other stuff. I like that. And yeah. after, after dating for a while, I just saw all of those things fall into place and let me know that we were on the same course. We had a lot in agreement together 
And we, I tell people too, like, you know, we agreed to the same rules of the game, yeah. basically, you know? So that's kind of, and we, we, we had all these major discussions before we got married because I was bound to determine, again, you can't say what's going to happen in the future, what one person may or may not do. But when it came to arguing my, I had a rule, I will never yell at you. You never raise your voice at me. That's yeah. off the table. We do not yell at each other. We can sit and disagree about things all day long, but I yeah. will not put up with someone yelling at me. I had too much of that. We talked about raising children. We talked about what our religious beliefs were. We nailed all those things down. And again, because of everything that I saw, I'm like, if we agree on these big things, everything else is negotiable. Mm. That's kind of how we entered our relationship and ended up getting married at 21. <laughs> Love it. It's funny. I came, came up in a family of yellers. Um, we mom would yell across the house to have us come down. And it was just very loud all the time. There were four of four kids and two parents, and it was just a busy household. My husband had one sister, two parents, and they just, they would walk into the other room to say whatever it is they needed to say. So when I first got married and I would yell, You'd be like, no, that's, yeah. we, we don't, we don't do that. I'm like, what do you mean? Even like yelling it's dinner, you know, yeah. he's like, uh-uh, walk upstairs <laughs> and tell the kids it's dinner. I'm like, all right. So we did not, there was not a lot of yelling in, in, in my household and, um, and my, this home, <laughs> which is nice. Um, we mm-hmm. changed that trajectory. Um, I didn't like, it. it was very jarring growing up, but that's what I was used to. Sure. Sure. Um, so it's curious. Uh, I hear what you're saying. And I love the intentionality that you had in dating and um, being like hyper aware of red flags that might crop up and things that did and did not work for you. Um, well, and, and, and it's funny because, you know, I had that awareness, but I, I was wrong on several things too, that I learned before I got into that relationship, because like you said, hyper aware, I for sure was yeah. to my detriment sometimes. And uh, one young man I was dating before my husband called me out on it and I needed to be called out on it. Right. We were dating and he was great, never did anything wrong. And he made a comment one day and I said something sharp that was unnecessary about, oh, you're just like either my dad. I don't know what it was. I said some comment saying he was this, this, and this. He was like, are you going to hold everything your dad did or your the men in your life did against every man you date from now on? Hmm. I was like, oh, yeah probably not a good idea. I need to check myself. So right. that's another tool that I learned and I've taught my kids this too, is you believe someone for what they say they are, who they are, what they believe until they give you different information. It could be by their actions, by their words, you know, whatever, yeah. but that's something I had to learn. And I had to accept my husband for who he said he was going to be. And we had a couple of experiences while we were dating that, that came up into, you know, where I had to prove that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Tell what is what's the purity culture movement? The whole the purity culture is sitting around a youth group, passing around a crushed up rose to the girls and saying if you have sex before marriage, you're just like this crushed up rose, you'll never be the same again. Wow. Okay. That's the purity culture. And then all of the things around it that look like it is your skirts have to be below your knees. You can't wear a shirt unbuttoned more than two fingers below your collarbone. Um, no dating without a chaperone. Mm-hmm. Uh, some families take it really far, like no holding hands before marriage, no kissing before marriage. 
And anytime there was a default in any of those things, if someone found out that someone had had slept with their partner, God forbid someone get pregnant before marriage, it was always the girl's fault. She was acting immodest. Men can't control themselves. You know, you're tempting them and they, they are, they're, they have, you know, biological needs and you shouldn't have behaved this way. They wouldn't have done this. Mm. That's the purity culture. Okay. Interesting. Um, do you think that the church that you grew up in, was it, did it feel more like a cult than a church? Is it a combination? No, 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 I didn't feel like there weren't rituals like that. Like you see on, you know, Netflix documentaries and things like that. And there wasn't, I never saw anything bad happen. It was that underlying theme that traveled across every, almost every family. Like I said, my husband's church he grew up in too. And the college that we went to, all the kids that came there, they were kind of all in the same situation. Yeah. Um, it was like in the the, re, the phrase that I coined, the hyper fundamental Baptist culture, that's what that is because there's plenty of Baptist churches. None of them believe any of that. Like yeah. you go and you'd never you never heard of that at all. Um it's just these these select few where they put these preferences as your evidence of your righteousness and your standing and walk with God. What kind of a church do you belong to now? I belong to a church in Weddington and it's what we want, which is a congregation of people mm-hmm. that believe in a creator mm-hmm. that want to, you know, the, the purpose for a church, because we can all read the Bible. We can all have a personal relationship with God. So when, when personally, when I go to a church, I could go in with no music, no fanfare, sit down, listen to someone. The reason we all read any book or listen to any podcast, we want to learn something or we need to be reminded of something because none of us do what we're supposed to do all the time. But as groups go, when you have any type of group, you want to make it a meal, you know, you want people to want to come there. So you have the music, you have, you know, the hymns and things like that. So all that's fine. But we actually go to church with someone I went to college with. Okay. I I know them personally. I know his wife personally. I know what they believe. Um, one of the great things that our pastor always says is as your pastor, I'm not here to tell you how to run your house. Right. And that's what I love. Yeah. <laughs> so finding sure. people that believe commonly as you do, yeah. that are trying to be better people every day. Mm-hmm. And we have a biblical worldview. Simple as that. Interesting. You know, a lot of the matches that I make are based on religion, mm-hmm. or really based on the ethical and moral system that people use to live their lives and, and, you know, where they want to go in their life. So, um, I dig in a lot with my matchmaking when men hire me for matchmaking about what they're looking for in terms of spirituality, faith, if they're agnostic, I'm not going to match them with somebody who is a very religious person. It's just, right. so people definitely need to be on the same groove there, especially if they're looking to have children and everything else. Those are all the conversations that you need to have before, you get married. Don't be afraid yeah. to have those conversations, <laughs> even early days of dating, first five dates. 100%. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I see this in my clients all the time. So, again, like I said, people start sharing things during body work. Mm-hmm. And I hear religion is one of a big one because people think, you know, if there's attraction there, we can make anything work. We like each other. We're both good people. Right. We have both good moral people. Yep. And then you have children. And yeah. one partner wants to take them to get bapti- uh, infant baptism. And the yeah. other person was like, we didn't do that growing up. You don't get baptized yeah. until you're saved. 
Now right. you have, wh- what do you do there? Or yeah. you have other religious cultures that are way more regimented and <clears throat> maybe none of those discussions happen until the child becomes a toddler and starts talking mm-hmm. and starts repeating things they hear at school. And then one parent's like, oh, we need to, we need to tighten the reins here. We need to get involved in like a good moral community. We should start going to church now. Well, do you go to the synagogue or do you go to exactly. the Baptist? There you, you know. go. So yeah. it's a bit, it's a big thing along with many things like that fitness and health. Like mm-hmm. I said earlier, my husband and I agreed on the rules of the game. We were going to play together. Yeah. And the rules of our game is yes, life is going to happen. I'm going to get pregnant and have kids. Who knows how that's going to go. But the rules we agree on is we have put our health physically, mentally, emotionally as a standard mm-hmm. that we expect each other to hold up to. And yeah. I have seen that rip marriages apart often, mm-hmm. either like if it, the two of us have this agreement that health and fitness and those things are a priority. And one of us just decides not to anymore mm-hmm. and, you know, becomes obese. I've seen this happen in clients. That's, that's two different games we're playing. Or um, I've had two unhealthy, I've had two, I have clients as couples come to me and they're both very unhealthy. One Mm -hmm. of them decides to start going on a healing journey and a health journey, Mm -hmm. hires a nutritionist, starts eating healthy, doesn't want to drink anymore. That's a big one. That's a big one. One They don't want to drink anymore. And the other one, that's not, this is what we do. We drink, we drink every night, we go out. We, right. we, we have alcohol in the house. So yeah, those, those things that were agreed upon or not agreed upon. That's why I mar- there's many reasons marriages fail, but when I, what I see in my clients, what they've shared with me, there's some big ones, money, mm-hmm. health, fitness, mindset, and then religion is, are there big ones? They're, they're big ones that can knock people for a loop. Yeah. And so the main thing, and we'll wrap up with this is that you want to make sure that you're do whatever you need to do to clear your mind of anything that is triggering, anything that's going to create inflammation in your body, anything that is going to be very disturbing. And you can do that through meditation. Uh, Body work is a fantastic way to do that, to release the anxiety because you will make yourself sick. Mm -hmm. These disturbing thoughts are constantly circulating in your mind because you cannot, your mind can't figure it out. Your spirit can, but your mind cannot. And people think that their minds are who they are. And that's actually not the case. And it's confusing until you like really capture that the essence of all of that. So body work is a really easy way to do that. In my opinion, it's a mm-hmm. small investment into your health and, um, and relaxation and, uh, enjoyment of life. So, uh, this has really been wonderful. Thank you so much, Sandra. It was delightful talking to you today. Thank and- you so much. Yeah. If people want to find you, where are you on socials and uh, Instagram at the Sandra Weber and integrativebodywork.com. Perfect. Yep. That's great. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to love on the go. I hope you join us on our next episode. You can make sure to know when it is by following us wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed it, it'd be great if you left us a review. I'd appreciate it. In the meantime, to learn more about me and how my team can help you, visit carolinasmatchmaker.com. Until next time.